Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice. Contains God's plan for the family. Also has the truth about life and death. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Happy that you're here and ready to study the Bible because that's all we do for the next 30 minutes is discuss the Bible and we do it by answering questions. If you see a phone number and a website on the screen, you can use those anytime. Get in touch with us and you direct the program. You give us questions, we give you answers as fast as we can. Uh, call one in or better yet, log on to the website and send us an email. Uh, we'll get you an answer to that pretty quickly, but uh, for the program, we'll put it in our stack and get to it just as soon as we can. It'll be a few weeks before we get it on the air, but we will get to it. So that's how we operate, and we just uh, think it's a good way to help people know their Bible. Let me uh, introduce the two men who help me answer questions each week. Jeff Martin's down there. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Toby Levering in the middle. Hey, Hi, Toby. Steve. I'm Steve Tandy, and we're going to answer a few questions today, but you get the first crack at a question. So here's your question of the day. Uh, name the parents of Ishmael. Ishmael was a character in the Old Testament that the Ishmaelites, his descendants, caused the Israelites a lot of trouble. Uh, so who were his parents? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program, and I think Toby gets to start us off I today. Do. Yeah, I have a question. It says, uh, I have always believed in God and Jesus, but sometimes I wonder if it's not all true. Is this Satan at work in me? Well, I appreciate your very forthright, honest question. <clears throat> I do believe that people of faith all wrestle with doubt from time to time. Uh, we know that this happened even among the early believers in Jesus. Uh, the famous one, of course, is Thomas, uh, who was sort of given a bad rap for his doubt, but he just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see this resurrected Jesus that they had all been talking about. So I think it is natural in the journey of your walk with Christ to come to points where you have doubt. And you say, is this Satan at work in me? Eh, maybe. Maybe. I know that Satan, since the beginning, you know, there in Genesis 3, after God had given them this perfect world, what is the first question we see Satan asking? Did God really say? See how he's working that in there? So I think the um, as you go along and you come to these moments of doubt, uh, we have to, the way we can strengthen our faith is with God's word. Romans 10:17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. So the more that we're in the word, which is why, you know, as a viewer of this program, it's really important to watch with your Bibles open. Uh, it's really important to, you know, sign up for the Bible correspondence. That's doing more than just giving you knowledge. It's putting on your heart and on your mind and on your soul God's word which will help combat those moments of doubt or when the enemy says did God really say you can say yes I know this is what God really says so doubt is normal the way we overcome that is with faith uh, and and we strengthen our faith with God's word 
Hebrews 11:6 says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please God." There's always going to come moments where you just have to trust God, and you're going to have to lean upon His promises and His Word, and mostly Him, uh, to see you through. And so, faith is the only way we get there. We can strengthen that with God's Word, but doubt will happen to normal Christians. We just got to work through it by being reminded of his word and by trusting in the Lord himself. Uh, to remind us that this is not a new thing, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and following. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now remember, this is after Jesus had been resurrected. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So doubt was there at the beginning. I think it does happen for people at all walks of faith. And the best way is just to put our trust back in the Lord and be reminded of the promises of his word. That's what we call faith. Hope that helps you. All right. Uh, I've got a question about the meaning of a verse. What did Jesus mean in Matthew 10:34 by, I don't bring peace but a sword? And if you were reading the whole New Testament, you would probably read this, and, and you've also read things like, I, I, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So you ask yourself the question, why does Jesus now have a sword? Uh, so uh, context is important, and, and this question shows uh, more than, than many questions why context is important. So let's start by not just reading uh, 1034, but also the two verses following, and see if we can understand what's going on. Uh, says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, so in these verses, Jesus is saying he is coming with a sword and a sword is something that divides things. We know that. And he specifically says in those verses after verse 34, what will be divided? That some children would be set against parents and a man's enemies would be in his own household. Family members are going to be divided from each other. And what he's talking about is this is because many people who choose to follow Christ are hated by their family members because of it. Now, this doesn't happen too often in America. It's happening more often lately. Uh, but this happens a lot overseas. People who choose to, uh, to follow Christ pay this price as a cost of discipleship. Uh, it's a hard teaching, but the love of family should not be greater uh, than our love for the Lord. And true followers of Christ should be willing to give up anything, including their family. Uh, if we're going to be worthy of Jesus. So that's the sword, or that, at least that's what the sword is dividing, and that's what's being talked about in Matthew 10, verse 34. All righty. Oh, interesting question uh, about swords here, sort of. Does the Bible approve of self-defense? Well, in Jesus' day, that would have been the main means of self-defense was a sword. Uh, but uh, obviously we've got other things today. So the, does the Bible approve of self-defense? Now, the problem is with this question that Jesus very clearly said, turn the other cheek. Don't resist. Okay? So 
there are people who take that and uh, have a pacifist position, and I understand that. Jesus was very clear that we ought to turn the other cheek and not resist. And so some people take a completely pacifistic position. Uh, you don't resist evil. You, you don't defend yourself and all of that. Uh, taken to the extreme, I have trouble understanding it completely. Uh, taken to the extreme, if you're in your house and some thug breaks in, uh, a pacifist in theory would just lay back in a recliner and say, okay, take anything you want. Uh, take the wife and kids if you want. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to do anything to you. Uh, that doesn't ring reasonable to me. Uh, I understand people who think that way and who take Jesus' words to this point of pacifism. However, I think there are other verses that make us think about, okay, maybe there's a little more nuanced position here. Uh, let me look at just the three of those verses that are in the Bible, and we'll talk about each one of them as we go. Uh, Luke 22 is the first one. Jesus told his followers when he was sending them out on a dangerous mission, he said, if you don't have a sword, get one. Now, that sounds a little like you ought to protect yourself. Uh, back in Exodus 22, when God made the moral laws, uh, a home defender, somebody in your home, uh, in the middle of the night, if somebody breaks in, uh, you don't have to just let them take anything you want. Uh, you can knock them in the head with a rock and you won't be guilty of bloodshed. You can defend your home. Uh, in Romans 13, uh, Paul lays out the uh, plan that the government punishes evildoers. Uh, we don't take vengeance. The government does that. But it doesn't condemn self-defense. So if you look at Jesus telling folks to get a sword and the Old Testament laws about self-defense, I think maybe there's a distinction between being persecuted for Christ's sake and just being abused by evil people. That's the distinction I make. If I'm being persecuted for preaching Christ, for being a Christian, I should take that. I should tolerate that. I should turn the other cheek because then they will see Christ in me. But if some evil person on the street tries to mug me, uh, I think I've got a right to resist and protect my property. Now, obviously, it's an individual decision uh, how far you take that and whether you defend yourself of deadly force and everything else. That's another matter. Uh, but I would say... My reading of the Bible is that the Bible does approve uh, of self-defense uh, when you're just being attacked by evil people. Uh, if you're standing up for Christ, then you need to do a lot more cheek-turning than the rest of the time. So uh, I think that's the way I would explain it. Let me take a moment and invite you to study the Bible with us. We've got some good tools that we uh, offer every week absolutely free of charge. All you have to do is uh, use that phone number or website at the bottom of the screen, and we'll start sending you these courses. First one is about the Old Testament. You just get a big overview of the Old Testament. Uh, and then the second one is the New Testament. When you're done with those two, uh, you'll know a whole lot more about your Bible than you do now. So once you're through with that course, 
you can go on to some more advanced courses and study in more detail. We pay the postage both ways. Absolutely no charge to you. And if you like digital things, online work, we can help you with that too. Oneway.worldbibleschool.org is where you sign up for some digital courses and you can study uh, anywhere, anytime. Uh, learn the Bible as you go. So uh, all options, phone number, website on the screen. Tell us you'd like a free course. We'll get it started for you or log on and get your own online course. All right, Toby. Question about baptism. We get a few of those now and again. The question is, is sprinkling or pouring actually baptism? My answer to that is no, it is not. Uh, there's a lot of confusion on this question uh, because in the religious world, uh, that term baptism basically has become an umbrella term uh, to have almost anything to do with sprinkling, pouring, or being immersed in water. But the original word, baptizo, simply means to be immersed. So to be uh, true to the text, um, baptism is only by immersion. If you've been sprinkled, uh, technically you were rantizo, to see is the word for that. Uh, or if it's been, if water was poured on you. So technically, it's Baptized, or if you've been sprinkled, if it was sprinkled or pouring, no, it was not baptism. Uh, we can also, without knowing any Greek, look at every description of a baptism, and there's not a lot, but one of them is in Matthew chapter 3. Now, I'll pause to point out that this is the description of Jesus' baptism, which was for a different reason than the Christian baptism, because obviously Jesus had no sin to be forgiven of and nothing to repent of, but he wanted to be baptized, so John obliged that. But in the description of that act, it says that Jesus came up out of the water. Uh, that's verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. So if sprinkling was sufficient, if pouring was sufficient, either of those two, two things could have been done. Another example is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which is found in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and following. We'll read it on the screen. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Well, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, the, the Philip, Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So if sprinkling or pouring was all you needed to be baptized, there would be no need for them to go down into the water. Uh, it would have been fine just to sprinkle a little on your head or pour it. Well, uh that's the biblical definition. That's the biblical example. We just don't see any other way but immersion. Every description is of where we get it. Those details is of people going into the water. And I think one of the reasons, Romans chapter 6, you can read this, uh, is that baptism is a picture as well of the gospel the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, that happens when you go into the water, you go under the water, and you come up out of the water. There's a picture 
being replayed. It's it's a reminder of what is happening. So for those reasons and uh, everything else I've already talked about, no, sprinkling or pouring is not actually baptized. If you've been sprinkled or poured, you should be very grateful to your parents. Probably that was done to you as a young child or as an infant. Obviously, they wanted you to live a godly life. Now that you have the biblical information, I would encourage you to be baptized biblically and do what the scripture says. I hope that helps. All right, Jeff, you got a couple minutes to tell us all about heaven. Yes, all about <laughs> heaven. I'll, I'll see what I can do. A viewer wants to know how does the Bible describe life in heaven? Uh, a lot of what we know about heaven is described in Revelation, and part of it is just the, the beauty of, of, of what we will be in front of. It tells us that the city is filled with the brilliance of precious stones and crystal clear jasper. It says heaven has 12 gates, 12 foundations, uh, that the paradise of the Garden of Eden will be restored. The river of the water of life flows freely and the tree of life is there for us to see. Uh, not only that, but the tree of life will yield fruit uh, monthly with leaves that heal the nations. Uh, so we know right off the bat that it's going to be a beautiful place beyond our understanding. And we have very little written about it, but we do, we do know that it will be beautiful. But perhaps my favorite verse of what heaven will be like uh, is in Revelation 7, 15 through 17. And I think this gives us the best idea uh, of, or a description of life in heaven. It says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So again, a very beautiful verse. Uh, and, and, and we know that the things that are bad on this earth are not going to be present in heaven. The things that make us weep, the things that hurt us physically, the things that we don't understand, the sin that so easily entangles, none of that is going to be present when we're in paradise with Christ. Uh, and it will be imaginable. And even if we take all the verses that we have about heaven and, and, and read every single one of them, uh, it's the, the description or the understanding still cannot fit in our, our finite human brains. Uh, but those are some of the ways that the Bible describes heaven to us. All righty. Pretty good explanation of <laughs> something that we're not told a whole lot about. It's hard to know. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, Toby had a question about baptism. Here's one about being baptized for dead people. What does baptize for the dead? mean in 1 Corinthians 15, 29? Well, it is kind of a strange verse and a little bit difficult to understand in some ways, but I think if you look at the context, it's not that difficult. Let's just read 1 Corinthians 15, 29 before we start explaining it. Uh, Paul says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? All right, now the key, I think, is reading what he's talking about. And if you go back in chapter 15, way up to verse 12, uh, he's answering a problem in Corinth uh, where some people were teaching that there's no resurrection, that when you die, you're just dead. Uh, you're dead all over like Rover. It's just done. 
but Paul's arguing that, no, we are resurrected. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And he makes a long argument uh, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. And his last part of his argument is in verse 29. And he says, by the way, he said, people are baptized for the dead. Uh, if there's no resurrection, uh, why are they baptized for the dead? Now, depending on how you read that, uh, he could very well, and I think he is, meaning that baptism in large part is for when you're dead. Uh, uh, when people are baptized, uh, they get some earthly benefits out of that. They get the Holy Spirit to live with them and help change them into the image of Christ and all that. But the biggest hope at baptism is the hope and promise of eternal life. So when you're baptized, in large, large parts, you're doing it for when you're dead. And Paul says, you know, if you're not even going to be resurrected, then baptism's a waste of time. And he says that in other ways back in there. Now, let me uh, add that I know there is one religious group that takes this very literally and believes that you can be baptized for people who are already dead. Uh, baptism by proxy. I'm going to be baptized for this person and use his name and that will get him baptized somehow in the afterlife. Uh, and I understand they believe that and practice it in a large way. Uh, the problem with that is we're told very clearly uh, that when you die, the next thing that happens is the judgment. It's appointed that a man wants to die and then the judgment. Uh, there's no second chances, there's no purgatory, there's no waiting for somebody else to be baptized for you. Uh, when you die, that settles things, and then you're going to be judged for how you lived on earth. So that's the main problem with thinking you can be baptized for a dead person, uh, which that verse just doesn't quite say. Okay. Oh, um, let's see. Time to talk about visiting a church, isn't it? Let me invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, this program's presented by the Churches of Christ. Uh, uh, Toby and Jeff and I all attend the Northside Church of Christ in Wichita, Kansas, and we um, produce this program and broadcast it in ten states. And a lot of churches of Christ took around that Mark viewing area help us stay on the air. So we like to mention some of them each week and thank them. Uh, one of our partners is up in Burlington, Iowa, the Burlington Church of Christ. A uh, great bunch of folks up there that have been longtime supporters of, of us broadcasting out of Rock Island and into the Iowa-Illinois market up there. Take care of a lot of uh, things for us up there and appreciate their work for Know Your Bible. Uh, whatever market you're in, there's probably a Church of Christ near you. We invite you to drop in and visit one of them and tell them thank you for keeping this program on the air. All right, Toby. Money question. Mm -hmm. uh, does your uh, tithe need to go to a church or could it go to some needy person. Well, there are some principles. Of course, when we talk about a tithe, we need to understand, first of all, we're talking about 10%. Some people use the word tithe and use that sort of generically to just mean any sort of offering. But if you're talking about 10%, 
that principle was a principle on the Old Testament. It's never repeated specifically. In fact, I think it's probably a, a good place to start, but uh, the, the, the restrictions are lifted, so to speak, in the New Covenant. We can do more than that. Now, you ask, could, could I just give this to some needy person? Well, if you look at the principle of the tithe, it was a what you set aside, and it was God's portion first. Malachi chapter 3, a famous verse talking about tithing. He says, I've been robbed. How are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? He says, challenges them. He says, verse 10 of Malachi 3, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. And he's talking about my house being the temple. So the idea of a tithe is that's God's portion. It's directed to God's work. And under the new covenant, that would be under the kingdom, the church. So uh, let's look at one principle from Proverbs 9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So principle one is God gets the first fruits. God gets the first part. That's a way of honoring him. It's also a way of trusting him. And so we, we give that to him first. If you give to needy people, if you support charities, all those things are fine, but you don't put those in line ahead of God. So I would say the principle, if you're going to tithe, would be devote that to God first, to the local church first, and then over and above, you want to do some extra or special giving, special offerings, you might call them, uh, within the church or outside the church. I think those things are fine. The Bible doesn't give us any specific rule. Uh, there is a principle. I'll give you one more in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. All of these principles of giving and tithing and honoring the Lord with the first fruits, there's really a blessing in that. And the blessing is it frees up something within our spirit. Giving and generosity is the antidote to greed and selfishness. And it makes our nature more aligned with God's who is himself a giver. John 3:16. for God so loved the world, he gave his son. So, uh, the principle is God first, honor him first with your wealth, and, and of course, be generous and charitable and support the needy and do all of those things uh, as you go about living with extra things beyond your tithe or what you've decided to give. Hope that helps you just a little bit. All right. Tell us about the IRS here. Yes. <laughs> it's an interesting question. A viewer wants to know, why are tax collectors in the Bible spoken of being so bad? And they are spoken of really negatively in the Bible. And the best way that I can answer this question is to get you to put yourself in the shoes of those early believers. So if you can imagine that we're here in America and we are taken over by and, and occupied by an oppressive foreign government. And they're here and we don't want them here, but they're here. And not only are they here, but they want your money. Uh, and that would be pretty rough. Uh, but imagine if you take it one step further, uh, some of your neighbors decide that they are going to work for that oppressive foreign government. And they are going to come to your door and collect the money for them. And that's exactly what was happening. Uh, there were Jews who were working for the Romans to take money for taxes from their own people. And so from a biblical perspective, this is a perfect opportunity uh, to make people understand forgiveness and how to act as followers of Christ. 
In Matthew 5:46, it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So that phrase, do not even the tax collectors, takes on a whole new meaning when we understand who they were. So that's, that's why tax collectors were treated so badly. No wonder they didn't like them. Yep. <laughs> Trivia question. Name the parents of Ishmael. His folks were Abraham and Hagar, the handmaid. And that caused all kinds of problems for generations. We're glad you've been with us today and hope you come back next week for more of your questions. Until then, we just hope that you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.